Welcome to the Liberal Europe podcast, European Liberal Forum Project. I'm your host, Ricard Silvestre. And today I welcome back to the podcast Christiane Varga. Christiane is a researcher in future trends, and she's also the author of the publication Basic Social Security in the 21st Century, New Formats, Models and Concepts, a publication with NIOSH Lab and the European Liberal Forum. And joining us is Dieter Fierabend. Dieter is the scientific director at NEOS Lab. And after our conversation, I'll be back to tell you about some of the events and projects organized by ELF for this month of December. I'm here with Christian Varga and Dieter Federbrand. Thank you so much for coming back to the podcast. Hi, Ricardo. Thanks for the invitation. Hi, also from my side, and thanks for having me. Oh, it's great to have you here. And we are going to be talking about the study Basic Social Security in the 21st Century, where Christian was the study author and Dieter was also involved in the publication and also as a scientific ed of the NEOS lab. And I'm going to start exactly with you, Dieter, and that is, tell us the importance of this publication. Why? for NEOS lab and then working with Christian was important to have this publication at this time. Sure. I think uh, social security is such an important part of our uh, modern lifestyle and our society. And the welfare states have come under pressure in the last, let's say, decades. We have an aging society. We have new forms of work digitalization and the EU mobility. And we often speak about concrete policies, but we speak seldom about the concept. What does social security mean in the, uh, actually? And we are working with, um, with definitions from the 60s and 70s. And for example, uh, digitalization is not covered in that. And I think we see a lot of policies throughout Europe that are failing and are not uh, working the way it should. And so um, we thought it's a good time to uh, step back from uh, concrete policies and talk about what does bas uh, basic social security mean in the 21st century? Where are the societal changes and what are the implications when we design policies? And therefore, uh, the collaboration with Christiane was very important for us because uh, from her topic or from her research areas, she very much look, looks into societal uh, change and uh, futurology. And this is, I think, a very uh, good point to start this discussion. I'm going to stay with you and then I'm going to bring uh, Christian into the conversation. But about how the sausage is made, when we're talking about European Union and having so many different social security systems, what is the kind of decision-making process that you have to go to and say, I'm going to focus on these regions, I'm going to focus on these countries, I'm going to focus on the differences between, for example, North and South? How does that work? Well, I think um, we have 27 different social security systems, but we are all facing the same challenges. And I think to have a discussion about the, the framework uh, on the European level, for example, to deal with those challenges is so important to find solutions that work in each, uh, each region. And I think 
that we will not have, a, let's say, federalized social security systems, but we need uh, kind of the, the same mindsets of what are actually the challenges or the transformations and how this plays out when we design new policies. And this is something where we can build together the framework on an EU level, but also share best practice examples or challenges throughout uh, all regions and member states to get it better done. Yes, and that was noticeable on, during the Facebook uh, video that you guys organized, and it was so smoothly done. Congratulations for that presentation. It was fantastic. And on that presentation, we had Christiane, and I'll throw it to you now. What was the, the main driver? Because you are a researcher of future trends. I already had you on the podcast for the benefit of the audience. So when this challenge came, what was the first thoughts that came into your mind? Well, I, I always zoom out a little <laughs> at the beginning. Uh, so my, my first thought was, in general, as my role as a trend and future forecaster, um, the thinking that the 21st century is a century of self-empowerment, of solidarity, and of an individualized way of living within new forms of community. So we have this kind of paradoxical things. The society is uh, very fragmented. There are very individualized lifestyles. But um, the thing is that future and evaluation is never like linear. It's not the way that it will be more and more individualized in the future. No, there's always something we call a recursion. So um, we have now the signals of change in that way that a lot of people are searching for new communities and new forms of living. So I think, and I discussed this really well with the NEOS lab, um, that we need to find new forms where we really can, as a major society, as a next level society, ensure that people live a more self-empowered life. And of course, are supported when necessary and this was the main task and at the same time <laughs> we have of course to reconfigurate our whole systems not only the basic social security because everything is linked to everything um, to that set structural change because the change happens anyhow there's a really huge structural change globally and yeah then um, we uh, um, we're thinking about, okay, what kind of change and what kind of systemic view might help. And then we decided to focus on the sectors and we noticed a sector shift. Yes, and I want to keep with the sector issue. And that was one of the conversations we had when I last had you on the podcast. And I'm, I should add that I'm going to add all the links on the podcast show notes of the last conversation I had with Christian, but also the study itself. But let's go a little more into that. So when we talked about it, you told me the importance of the four sectors and how particularly can, they can interact with each other. At the time, I was very, very interested in that conversation and I asked you to come back. So after do, doing the study, what is your perspective on this particular point now? Yeah, it's so interesting because there is a huge sector shift, a three-sector shift. I mean, we do have uh, this these separate functional systems, mainly in the three 
central sectors. The first one, we know that it's politics, it's public services. The second one is the market, companies, and the third sector, they are the NGOs, nonprofit organizations. And all the three sectors all contribute as least in parts to the well-being of the general public. Companies create jobs, NGOs provide services to society as an alternative to public and private institutions and the state, as we know and talk about it now, provides services to society with a wide range of health and education services. But now, um, of the societal point of view, there are many new forms of social participation and self-organization emerging and these new forms are positioning themselves more and more independently from all the three sectors. So these forms fit neither into the organizational logic of the market, the state, nor the third sector, because they act more as a network. And that means that whether they are permanent or temporary, they are flexible and stable at the same time, which fits much more in these like very fluid times. And they could all herald the era of a fourth sector that interacts with the existing sectors and thus in general can really strengthen the resilience of our society. And these new forms democratize certain responsibilities because they operate independently of the respective sectors, which automatically has an impact on the models of basic social security. And this was one main finding of, of the study. Yes, a very, very important one. And I'll throw it to you, Dieter, because um, Christian is bringing so many things to the table, a flexible but stable network, democratization, personal responsibility. So a lot of liberal values also that we defend in Neos Lab being a liberal thing. Thanks. So how can you translate this then into the political arena? Well, I think... Uh... It's important to, to uh, have the, let's say, common values uh, as kind of a checklist when we develop new policies. Just think about, uh, for example, uh, participation or the fourth sector. There is uh, a new way when we design policies where you can apply those techniques. For example, use social impact bonds, which is kind of a financial um tool to foster societal change where you have you know some key indicators for example reduce poverty or reduce crime rates and based uh, on those indicators you find people who finance uh, projects and if they're uh, well received then the states implements it for uh, for the whole state so this is kind of a, a new way where you have empowerment where you have the fourth sector where you have uh, really a, a, a development uh, which is in a participatory way for new ways of uh, uh, policies it's not just let's say some 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 politician and bureaucrats behind closed doors who meet some power brokers and then you will get uh, a new uh, law this is a very open a very transparent a very participatory but also a very focused uh, way of uh, developing new policies and one can say a better one yeah definitely Christian, I'm going to go to you now because I was challenging Dieter just a minute ago to go into the mindset of having so many member states inside the union and, and try to then have a common line going in through the different uh, social security systems. 
And for you in particular, as you were doing this uh, publication, I'm sure you were thinking also about that, how to articulate all these systems, especially when, and you brought this up during the presentation on Facebook, with so much mobility now, when we have Portuguese people working in Germany, you know, Polish people working in Italy. So how did you go about this particular topic? Yeah, as already mentioned, the huge changes are global, but of course they are like with a different rhythm or a different drive in different areas. Um, so it's very important to think like global, but local at the same time. And to check, okay, in, even in different countries, there are so many differences right now. So it's very important to focus on different areas and to stable the localhood there and to really evolve and to really check on uh, local solutions. I mean, the time where we have one plan for everything and everybody is over our world and the society is too complex for that. So it's really important to check this and it can be more than ever that you have one area in a country which is very similar to an area in another country, although these countries are very not similar to each other. So you have to really go into more details and you have to check where we can learn uh, from one another and which really system, which really more um, detailed system of basic social security makes sense in different areas. And um, yeah, I think that's the way we, we have to deal with the complexity and with the future. So it adds to what you were saying about the development of networks, where as you were saying, we can go from global to local and then from local to different localities, but they have the same system. So this is the kind of work that you are proposing we do to make a characterization of the systems and then try to see a common point. Did I get, I got that right? Yeah, totally. I mean, the network thinking is the base for the 21st century because it's it the digital component is within it as well and digitalization can help a lot in these uh, terms and days and this is one main point and another point is that the one driver of these networks is a new search for meaning and the will to act on one's own authority on the citizen side and there are really a lot of new ways of living, like co-living, evolving, multi-generational living. And this has to do with the basic social security system because it yeah, can, can strengthen it and it can put pressure out of it in some areas. And you brought up digital transformations, and I want to talk about that also in specific. But now I'll throw it to you, Dieter. Do you want to add something in here? I would add one thing. I think it's important when we talk about social security systems and the way we go forward to see it not only as a national, but also uh, as a European topic. Just to give you one example, there is, I think it's 900,000 people who are cross-border workers, so who live in one state but work in the other state. And when you think about, uh, for example, the pension system, then we really think about uh, it 
currently as a national way and as a national solution and uh, this is not necessarily going forward because for example if changes uh, into the Austrian pension system but you from Portugal live in Austria and work here you get some amount of money because you have paid into the pension system so even if you go back to Portugal changes here in Austria will definitely change the way how you have uh, your old age uh, pension when you're back in Lisbon. So we think we need to think about it also from a European perspective. And there, uh, I think it's important to, to uh, develop a set of rights and obligations for all citizens when we talk about social security systems and we need to make sure that all member states fulfill those rights and obligations. And that's the way how we can go forward uh, within the European Union. I totally agree with you. And I can give an example to uh, reinforce what you were saying. There was this situation between Finland and Portugal, where Finn people, once they retire, they have a social security system. And then in Portugal, there's a different one. And there was this mismatch between the two uh, systems. And there was some discussion between politicians to try to at least harmonize a little bit. Talking about harmonization and throw it to you, Christian, you're just mentioning the importance of digitalization. Is, does this tool just have positive aspects or are there negative aspects that you saw from your study that you want people to be aware of? Yeah, good question. Thank you for that. There are um, positive and negative aspects for sure. Well, of course, um, it helps a lot to be more flexible and to move with a digital ID or something like that. Of course, you can store all the information about you, where you worked, where you lived, and at one place. So uh, you have it always and you, you can uh, take a look at it. Of course, digital solution can make the system, in that case, more efficient. It can make it sleeker and more cost-effective as well. And that's the, the good side. I mean. And there are great bureaucratic efforts still, and they're very cost-intensive for all the, the public administration. And Belgium is here very ahead because Belgium used technology to improve the efficiency and service delivery of the country's social security systems. And they did a lot of digitalization and automating its institutions and the administrative um, things. So there were much less burdens for citizens citizens, but as well for companies or institutions. Um, and um, I just read an article about it and they said that the system uh, saved like um, about 1 billion euro annually. And not only that, the auxiliary unemployment benefits funds of Belgium arranged that 800 paper forms have been replaced by 220 electronic processes and more than a billion paper-based exchanges have been replaced by electronic messages. So oh, we wow. have all this um, paper stuff, not, not here, it's pretty good for the environment, but it's not that true because um, uh, digitalization, it's, yeah, it, it can be a problem for the environment as well because yeah, the electronic things and so on. But the main negative side is, of course, the data, data transparency. It's always uh, a problem when you store really sensitive or personal data um, because of uh, data transparency. And it 
is a huge question now evolving about this topic. Well, those were some very impressive numbers <laughs> that you just brought up. And uh, Dita, I know there is work done with the uh, NIOSH lab and also in with the European Liberal Forum on this particular point. you want to add something here? Yeah, definitely. We did uh, last year two studies, one on the use of uh, data and AI solutions for uh, from government services, and the second one was artificial intelligence and healthcare systems. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, to really uh, cut it short, there are three pillars I think are important uh, also when we talk about basic social security. The first thing is uh, about the framework. I think it's important that we develop uh, and further developed the, the uh, legal codification of artificial intelligence, and especially when you think about the ethics uh, debate. This is so important because it, there are a lot of things where we can make uh, progress, but there are also risks, and we need to uh, mitigate the risks, but also make space for uh, innovations. And to, to just give you an example why this is so important that we do it, uh, there are three big global players when we talk about AI. You have the US, where you have big uh, private companies, and they're not necessarily the ones where you really develop uh, ethics frameworks because that would be a loss of profit. Then you have China, which will not uh, tackle the uh, uh, ethics debate for obvious reasons. So this is really a business case for us in, in Europe to combine uh, progress uh, with uh, human rights. The second thing is the, uh, how does the government or government services uh, uses AI and the data? I think there you also need kind of an implementation like a rule book and also uh, strengthen the rights of individuals. For example, in France, uh, the ticketing system, when you have a uh, a speeding ticket. This is fully automatized. And only if you, for example, think things that went wrong, then you can say, okay, I uh, do think that uh, there was something wrong. And then a human being looks at the case and looks if you really uh, uh, got a trafficking charge or not. So you have a right, for example, uh, to challenge an outcome. And I think to strengthening uh, the codification that you have a right if there is an automated system that makes a decision, that's very important. And the third thing, when we talk about societies and individuals, I think there is a lot of things that are uh, possible, for example, the, in the AI and ethics paper uh, written apart, it's already possible uh, to diagnose um, depression even before it started. So just by looking at your Facebook posts, you can develop an, uh, an algorithm which says that in six to nine months, you will uh, need to get medical consultation based on depression. So there is a lot of opportunity here. But also, uh, as Christiana mentioned, that the uh, data question, that's very important. And there are also uh, numerous ways how you can handle this. For example, uh, that you have the right for um, about your own data, but uh, the state uses uh, anonymized data. So it, uh, the state cannot track which individual is it, but could use the information in it, for example. Healthcare providers in, in various European uh, states already use this kind of an uh, anonymization technique, and I think this would be a way forward, also in terms of social security. Just this topic would be a, a podcast on itself, because we go from the dystopian stuff 
of having algorithms guessing if I'm going to be depressed or not than to entire medical systems and entire medical and social security systems trying to function with this new technology. As we're getting close to the end, uh, I'm going to throw it to you, Christian, about what you uh, called experimental approaches. And we already talked about this on the last podcast, but just as a refresher, please go into that and the importance for you of having this kind of solution. Yeah, sure. I think before we go into the experimental approach, it's important that we need as a society and in the political context, it sounds a little stereotyped and, and cliched, but we need new political visions. And this is so important because they are the base for an experimental approach and for an experimental uh, yeah, way, way of doing it. And uh, of course, these visions need to build on a very fine foundation, but uh, they're important and it requires as well the courage and the willingness to deal with this intensity of social division we have right now. And um, I think it's important that the different worlds of social values are first accepted and respected without wanting to interfere with and control or control it or control their logic. And so it's important that this next politic mindset needs a really strong confidence. Maybe as well in the fact that the current social rigidity and disorientation is only a temporary phase of instability. So like, yeah, a breath of fresh air for a new pattern that is just becoming established. And yeah, the experimental approach is so important in a world where everything changes so fast and it will even change faster in the future. Uh, so local experiments can be very useful here again, whether they come from citizens or for, from a local governance, a little like um, the think global act local thing. And I have a nice best practice. It's called the Global Parliament of Mayors. It's a governance body of by and for mayors from all continents with a vision to the world in which mayors, their cities and networks are equal partners in building global governance for an inclusive and sustainable world. And um, they, this section is from the website. They are saying the mission is to convince a global parliament of mayors to facilitate debates between mayors, national governments and international organizations, drive systematic action to take on global and national challenges and opportunities to achieve political change on a global scale. And you, here you have everything in it. I mean, it's local and global, you have a vision and you have the interaction between uh, companies, between citizens, between politics. And it's so logical because mayors in general, they take the leadership and ownership of the challenges and the localhood, but as well of the global challenges um, they're facing on that local level. So this is a pretty good thing and here you have everything in it like uh, new neighborhoods like uh, new forms of dealing with uh, the environment and all on a local level but globally connected 
This is a great way for people also to be a participant in the process because a mayor, it's someone that it's way more easier to contact than the prime minister or, you know, the European Commission. So here's an entry point for people that are listening to us and that would like to be uh, more a uh, part of this process. As now we're getting into our uh, parting shots and I'm going to go to you, Dita. Tell me what were some of the avenues for research and for policy that you found with this work? Based on the results of the study or while we were working there, uh, there have merged two things that we will do next year. So on an EU level, we will look about uh, digitalization and AI again in the post-corona society. Uh, and I mean, it's a, a generational approach, but this is, I guess, the first time that also social um, issues are uh, connected with, a, let's say, a tech issue, for example, should there be a right to internet access? Uh, in the pandemic, we have seen, for example, uh, a lot of e-health applications, but if you uh, do not have uh, internet or a stable internet connection, then you can have, uh, uh, then you do not have medical services. So uh, we try to to uh, incorporate those findings into uh, different areas where you do not see them uh, in general and on a national level. Uh, one thing that was very uh, curious, and we are doing a follow-up uh, project, is kind of a generational approach, because you see uh, a variety of effects that are uh, based on age, for example. So, so how does we we see, for example, a reduction uh, of poverty for pensioners uh, throughout Europe, but we have seen an increase of uh, poverty, and uh, not so much working great um, social security solutions for younger people. So we, we we try to to say, for example, when you have new forms of unemployment policies, how are things working out for for different age groups to make sure that the whole of the uh, of our societies benefit from those policies. Great job. And I'm going to give uh, Christian the last word. You as a future trends researcher, what did you took from this work you done and what would be the future trends that you would like to focus next? Yeah, for me, the societal change is still very fascinating. And the whole time now, the question, what does change mean? I mean, it's such a huge word and it's, it's like uh, mentioning so often. But I, I really mm, believe now we don't have to be that afraid of change. Change is normal, it's natural. and it's the force of a crisis can be seen as a momentum of revitalizing a system and of revitalizing society. And I think this was a like meetup point um, in the study. And this is very um, my, my next uh, point of view and my, my next work to focus on how, how do we really want to live as a society in the future? Because I think we are on a really massive tipping point now where we have to deal with this question and that means everything how do we want to live uh, how do we want to work what does digitalization mean to us to our daily life how can we implement it in a good way that it helps us and uh, yeah how do we deal with all this uh, data phrase what what you said before Dieter uh, the the data 
belongs to me, it's my data. I think this is one main question of the following decades. I have been talking with uh, Dieter Fierebender, the scientific head of NeosLab, and Christian Varga, the study author of the study Basic Social Security in the 21st Century. It was a privilege to have you on the podcast, and I hope to have you back. Thanks for having me, and uh, you did a wonderful job in the podcast series, and I'm really looking forward f uh, for everything that uh, will come up in the future. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. I'm back just to remind you that you can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and Spotify. And if you feel like it, give us a five-star review. In that way, you can help us spread even more liberal values and ideas. And now for some of the events organized by Elfa this month of December. On the 14th of December, based in Stockholm in Sweden, we have the book launch EU ETS, Reform Needs in the Light of National Policies. The European Union Transmissions Trading System is the world's largest emission trading system measured in tons of carbon covered. Since the launch, the system has gone through several changes and the EU will propose further reforms in 2021. This book takes a deep dive in the EU ETS and the needs for reforms and the role of national policies. This is a Facebook event and you can enroll by visiting liberalforum.eu forward slash events. And I will also like to introduce you to the new project from the European Liberal Forum, which is Advent Calendar. Time to refresh your liberal knowledge with the Elf Advent Calendar. Discover a new publication every day as we count down to Christmas. So if you go to liberalforum.eu forward slash advent calendar, you can find one publication a day so that you can refresh in all your liberal values and ideas. And this is all for now, but I'll be back soon with more podcasts. Until then, let's keep making the world a better place. The Liberal Europe podcast, it's organized by the European Liberal Forum with the support of Movimento Liberal Social in Portugal. This podcast is co-founded by the European Parliament, and the European Parliament is not responsible for the contents of this podcast or any use that may be made of it. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the European Parliament and or the European Liberal Forum. <laughs>